Requests that people stay indoors have become orders that people stay indoors. People are being fined and arrested for driving alone, for playing catch in the park, for paddleboarding on the ocean. How are measures like that keeping us safe? The short answer is we have no idea that they are keeping us safe. If you did not take social distancing measures and you just allowed this highly infectious virus to spread through the population, and you had 100 million people infected with a 2% death rate, that's 2 million people who will die. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. If you're like I am, and you live in a state that's been issued a stay-at-home order, you've probably spent the last month doing just that, staying home. But the weather is getting nicer. Maybe you're starting to feel like you're reaching your stay-at-home threshold. Your tolerance is low, and your cabin fever is high. You might be asking yourself, how much longer do we have to do this? To better understand why we need to continue staying home, we need to fully understand the threat of the virus. Because after all, as you've heard, we've been receiving mixed messages about this all along. So in today's episode, I'm going to ask someone who can break it down for us, who can give us the scientific facts. My guest today is Dr. George Skangos. George is a true scientist CEO. Uh, For the last two years, he's led Veer Pharmaceuticals in San Francisco. Its vision is, and I love this, a world without infectious disease. The company has taken on HIV, the hepatitis B virus, tuberculosis, and the influenza A virus. And now, Beer has set its sights on COVID-19. Dr. Skangos is also the leader of BIO's Coronavirus Collaboration Initiative, overseeing the biotech's industry's intensive and cooperative response to the crisis. Before that, he was the CEO of Exelesis, the president of Bayer Biotechnology, and before that, he was a professor of biology at Johns Hopkins University. So, George, welcome to I Am Bio. Thank you, Jim. I'm happy to be here. So I want to start by asking you to describe what this virus does when it enters a human body, and why is it both so contagious and so deadly to at least a subset of our population. This virus is a particularly nasty one. It infects you, you know, it's a respiratory virus. So it infects your respiratory system, your, you know, your nose, your nasopharynx, and then goes down into the lungs. Uh, it, it is especially lethal to cells called beta pneumocytes. And these are cells uh, in the lung that produce something called surfactant. So the surfactant is like, think of it like a lubrication for the small passages in the lung through which air flows. And if it doesn't have that lubrication because the cells that make it are killed by this virus, then they close. And then the, the lungs don't uh, uh, intake, take in the air anymore. So they're not being able to oxygenate the blood and then they end up on the ventilators because they can't breathe on their own essentially, uh, without that That's correct. Force. People can't breathe on their own anymore. Their lungs aren't taking up the oxygen that they need. And then the other aspect of this virus, it sometimes can spread to the heart and cause cardiac damage. And so people can uh, die of uh, heart failure. Uh, and uh, there are recent reports I've seen that it can also spread to the brain. 
So this is a particularly nasty virus. It's sneaky in the sense that it, it can infect people and allow them to spread it before they even know they have it. People who are infected can be asymptomatic for a period of time, but they're infectious. So people are walking around, they're infected with the virus, they're spreading it, they're infecting other people. They don't know they're infected. They feel okay. Maybe they have a little runny nose or some other very mild symptoms that you don't normally worry about. And so that's one of the characteristics of this virus that has made it spread so rapidly. And is it fair to say some people will get this virus, never know they have it, essentially recover, and, um, and potentially have built up an immunity in the process? Yeah, there are certainly are many people who get the virus, don't know they had it, and uh, have recovered. They are likely to have immunity. I think the question of uh, how potent that immunity is and how long-lasting that immunity is is still an open question. But it's likely that those people who've had it and recovered uh, have at least some degree of immunity. That's correct. So what I find so fascinating about this is that this virus is sort of on the line, but scientifically, I guess, between what is life and what is not life, right? Well, viruses in general are uh, have that characteristic. They are not capable of replicating and dividing and, and multiplying on their own uh, in, independently, which is one of the things, I guess, that defines life. But they do so very effectively once they infect cells of a host. So this virus has to infect your cells in order to make more of itself. And so that's kind of a um, uh, situation uh, that is not the strict definition of life, although these viruses clearly, I think, are alive, capable of replicating and uh, reproducing and uh, multiplying. Viruses are really hard to defeat. You look at HIV, the AIDS virus, the herpes virus, viruses that cause the common cold um, you know, two questions. Generally speaking, why are viruses so difficult? We haven't been able to find uh, ways to thwart those viruses yet. Why is it that we think that uh, the coronavirus can be defeated in a much shorter time frame? Yeah, uh, well, we hope we can. Uh, there's certainly no guarantee that we can. Uh, and given the urgency of the situation and the uh, the number of people who are um, dying and, you know, who have long-term health consequences is, is so significant that we have to do everything we can to try. Viruses, you know, have evolved over the years to be able to replicate uh, and survive. And there is a battle between the viruses and the human immune system, right? So it's, it really is uh, like a war. The virus invades your body. Your body brings up defenses. There are different kinds of defenses it can mount. Uh, in many cases, there's, you know, the, over the years of evolution, there's a balance. You get colds, but you don't usually die from a cold. So the virus infects you, it replicates, it can go infect more people, but it doesn't kill you. And that is actually the most effective strategy for a virus because it can keep infecting people without killing off the people it needs to replicate. Probably 30 to 50,000 people every year die from the flu, but most people who get the flu also survive. So flu has, is uh, a, a similar uh, virus. And we've both heard people in the last uh, month or two say, 
country's overreacting. We're closing down the economy. Um, after all, 15,000 dead uh, in the U.S., that's not much, uh, that's less than we would expect from the flu. So they're wrong about that. Tell us why this, this is so different and why we have to take all these extraordinary precautions. Well, yes, they're clearly wrong about that. This virus, this coronavirus, is much more deadly than the flu virus. If you call the mortality rate of this virus 2 or 3%, it's 20 or 30 times more deadly than the flu. So if you did not take social distancing measures and you just allowed this highly infectious virus to spread through the population and you had 100 million people infected, and with a 2% death rate, that's 2 million people who will die. And so this, what could happen with this virus so outweighs what happens with the flu that we have no choice. That's why we're all social distancing. So the numbers you see now for the number of deaths that are occurring, although they're rising at an alarming rate, are on top of all the social distancing that everybody is doing. Were we not doing that, they would be many fold higher than they are right now. So clearly this is a much more deadly virus than the flu. The things that we're discovering are, for instance, Italy had a very high proportion of elderly population compared to yes. many other countries, certainly compared to ours. Uh, and we have places in the world that have uh, different rates of underlying diseases that uh, enhance the likelihood that someone's going to, to be killed by this virus. In the African-American community, the, the, the mortality rates are much higher um, we're seeing um, places like Detroit, I want to say something like 20% of the population is African-American and 50% of the deaths are. I think in Louisiana, it's even worse than that. Something like 20 or 30% of the, uh, of the patients are, um, uh, of the popul population is African-American. It's like 70% of the, of the deaths. And so that has to do with other things like diabetes and access to healthcare. So it's, uh, it's striking different places in different ways. It, it, it certainly is. And I think what you're talking about, it certainly reflects the uh, disparities in healthcare that are available uh, in the country. So people who've had poorer healthcare in general, and therefore have untreated uh, diabetes or heart disease or some kind of chronic respiratory disease certainly are uh, at higher risk of, of dying from, from coronavirus. And so that's a sad statement of the state of healthcare in the, in the U.S., I think. Uh, age is also a factor, as you said, in Italy, you know, more elderly populations. Uh, and the um, rate at which people get infected is an impact. So, you know, as you've heard about in Italy, when the hospitals get overwhelmed and people are lying on cots in the hallways and there aren't enough respirators, then the death rate goes up too. And that, that's why the social distancing is, is so important that we just uh, spread the virus more slowly so that the hospitals can give the proper care to people who do get it. So within the past few weeks, your company has entered with breathtaking speed, a succession of partnerships with several larger biotech companies and with the NIH to develop medicines to combat the COVID-19. This is a crisis. Uh, people are dying every day. Every day matters. And so we are working literally as hard as we can and as many hours in a day as we can stay up, stay awake in order to accelerate the uh, bringing something forward that might actually help. 
you probably know that when your body's infected with a virus or other pathogens, it has a number of parts of the immune system that are capable of combating that infection. Uh, one of those uh, is uh, the development of antibodies. And antibodies are proteins that circulate in your blood that recognize the foreign uh, pathogen, bind to it, and then have mechanisms to uh, eliminate it. We've done that for many pathogens now. One of the early examples actually was Ebola. You know, after one of the Ebola uh, pandemics, our scientists uh, collaborated with scientists at the NIH and they isolated antibodies uh, that were capable of blocking um, infection with Ebola virus. They reduced the mortality of patients infected with Ebola. We have <clears throat> also isolated from a patient who recovered from flu a very unusual antibody, which has the capability of blocking every flu virus, flu influenza A, which is the majority of flu, uh, every influenza A virus that's arisen since the 1918 pandemic. So all of the epidemic strains, all of the uh, seasonal strains, even many strains of flu that are in birds, avian flu, that haven't made it into humans yet. So we are uh, bringing that forward clinically to see if we can provide a better level of protection from flu. As you know, uh, the flu vaccines work only partially well. They protect a fraction of the people who get them. Everybody should get them. They help, but uh, they don't. They're not universally protective. And that's a particular problem in the elderly, the same people who are at high risk for uh, um, hospitalization and death from COVID are um, at the same risk from flu. And so those people need better protection. And we believe we can provide that with this antibody. So we're testing that. We've also looked for antibodies in patients who've actually recovered from COVID-2 itself, and there's, there are antibodies there, clearly. So we have uh, our lead antibody is potent. Uh, it binds incredibly tightly to the virus. It neutralizes the virus, which means it blocks the ability of the virus to uh, replicate in cells. And that's been shown in three different laboratories. And so we anticipate being able to start clinical trials three to five months from now. Um, and hopefully those trials won't take too long. Uh, certainly don't take years. We're hoping some relatively small number of months. And then if the antibody shows efficacy in those trials, of course, we will uh, work with regulatory authorities to uh, uh, be able to bring it to patients as quickly as we can. We're working on CRISPR screens. So to identify human genes, host genes, uh, which, when inhibited, can block the ability of the virus to replicate. And just so, so everyone knows, that CRISPR, of course, is a relatively newer way of gene editing that's very um, elegant and much more, much simpler than those uh, scientific options we had earlier. So when a virus infects a cell, it doesn't bring with it everything that it needs because it knows that a lot of what it needs is already present in the cells. I think it's like when you go to a hotel, right? You bring clothes and you bring other things, but you don't bring sheets and pillows because you know the hotel will have those for you. So the virus has the same philosophy. It wants to travel light. It brings with it a few things that it needs uh, and then depends on a lot of the machinery that's in the cell to be able to divide and make more of itself. 
So the question is, can we identify those things that are in the cell that the virus needs and block them in order to prevent the virus from uh, replicating and, and causing an infection? And so in order to do that, we are, we, there's an ability now to use CRISPR to take every gene in the cell, everyone, and inactivate it uh, or activate it and then ask, does that single change uh, alter the ability of the virus to infect that cell? It's a remarkable uh, tool. And what it enables you to do this in a high throughput mode, so you can do in a matter of weeks, you can scan every gene. It's not a on-off switch, it's like a rheostat. Some are completely abolished replication, others have a more modest effect. Uh, and then using kind of sophisticated data sciences, machine learning, you can take that, what apparently is a disparate group of genes and ask how they relate to each other inside of the cell. And what you see is that they often form networks. And that tells you that that process is important for the replication of this virus. And it gives you insight into how you might go about making a drug that would uh, inhibit the virus. Well, with the advent of the pandemic, we formed our Bio-Coronavirus Collaboration Initiative to accelerate development of new diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines to combat COVID-19. We are enabling 50 or more biotech members to quickly and efficiently share data among companies and the federal government to identify and eliminate bottlenecks in the R&D programs and to make sure that the companies engaged in the most promising research and development projects get access to the new federal grants as quickly as possible. A few weeks ago, we held a virtual summit with more than 500 members of the biotech industry, along with Ambassador Burks, the Assistant Secretary for Prevention and Response, and the head of BARDA, the biomedical, which is the Biomedical Research and Development Authority, which oversees medical countermeasures in a pandemic. I want to play a clip of what BARDA Director Rick Bright told our member companies about the manufacturing challenge before us and get your reaction. We must think about mobilizing our industrial manufacturing base as quickly as possible. Not every company will have a particular candidate vaccine or drug or diagnostic, but every company has something to offer. We're asking all companies to work in collaboration and partnership in ways that many of us have never contemplated in the past to respond very quickly. He's absolutely right. And I look, I think this uh, situation in many ways has brought out the absolute best in our industry. You don't have to go very far to hear criticisms of the industry from various sources. Uh, my experience is that most people in this industry are in it because they derive meaning in their life from being able to bring forward medicines that will help other people. Uh, and in this case, there's a particular urgency to do that. We have, and other companies, have put aside the caution that you would normally take to protect your own business interests in the interests of speed and being able to bring something forward quickly. Companies are doing that because of the urgency that we feel that would not normally happen. Right? And so other companies are also uh, acting in a similar uh, way. We have entered into a number of other collaborations very quickly with the um, 
intent of let's just, uh, you know, put a very simple one page agreement together that says we're going to work together and we'll figure out the economics later so we can start working. That hardly ever happens. So it is a unique time. Uh, it is not business as usual. And uh, I think companies in bio uh, are, have recognized the urgency and want to do whatever they can to bring forward treatments or diagnostics or vaccines. Many biotech companies are uh, small. They are really good at what they do, but the breadth of what they can do is limited. Uh, and so they want to work with other companies who might have complementary sets of skills uh, so that together they could bring something forward. And I think, you know, one of the big things that bio can do is facilitate those interactions, uh, help to match companies, help to identify what the critical needs are and help those companies to get access uh, to those critical needs. The uh, symposium uh, is, was a start uh, in doing that. Of course, it's not the end. It's the beginning of a program that will, I'm, persist until we are uh, successful in bringing forward uh, vaccines and, and therapies. So look, George Skangos, you have been an admired leader in biotechnology for a long time. You are a leader in the, in the science of immunology, and now you're a leader of, in, in uh, the leader of BIO's Coronavirus Collaboration Initiative. Thank you for that, for helping us to pull all of the companies in our industry who have capacity to fight this COVID-19 disease so that we can succeed uh, and save as many lives as possible. The whole country, if not the whole world, is uh, hoping for your success, and so am I. So get back to work and, and, and help us get there. Well, thank you very much, Jim. Happy to be here. And uh, we will do something about this. Uh, the industry is, is mobilized, is moving incredibly quickly. There will be therapies. There will be vaccines. So eventually we'll, uh, we'll get this under control. Fabulous to hear. It's a sound of hope. Thank you, George. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Bye. So there you have it. The facts from one of the world's foremost virologists. The path back to normalcy will not be short nor easy. We're looking at a minimum of 9 to 18 months before there's an approved vaccine. But the biotechnology industry is working 24-7 in our labs to deliver important diagnostics, therapies, and even antibody shots before that. In the meantime, 2020 is going to be a difficult year, a year like no other. Hold your loved ones close, listen to your governors, and listen to science. On the next episode, I'll interview former Senator Joe Lieberman, and we'll talk about our work together on a bipartisan commission on biodefense. We had been warning elected officials for years. It wasn't a matter of if, but when a pandemic like this would strike. How can Congress use sound research and planning to get us through this crisis and be better prepared for the next one? We were warned. That's our topic on Monday's episode of I Am Bio.